Beer and Honey, the German football pod. Beer and Honey, the German football pod. Today, we try to deconstruct the enduring enigma that is Borussia Dortmund. We doff our hats to VfB Stuttgart and Bayer Leverkusen and we marvel at a Bayern Munich team with fewer subs than the Beer and Honey Supporters Club. All of this and more in this week's edition of Beer and Honey. Hello, dear listener. I'm Raphael Honigstein and today we have a very special guest sitting in for Christoph Biermann, who is, yes, on his honeymoon. Christoph, if you're listening, have a great time. But here we are. Doing the hard yards, match day 12, it needs analysis, and who better than Seb Stafford-Bloor from The Athletic to show up. Seb, welcome. Thanks, Raph. I hope Christoph doesn't listen during his honeymoon. That would be very depressing, but I hope he's having a nice time. No, no, you um, don't, don't underestimate the expertise that you can bring, especially after going to a pretty high-scoring game, maybe the best game of the weekend. Uh, but before we start, here's a quick reminder... Uh, if you can help us, uh, as you know, Bee and Honey needs all the help it can get. If you want to become a fully paid up member of the Bee and Honey Supporters Club, yeah, why don't, do, why don't you do so? Or you can come in Ultra and get a mug uh, as a uh, little token of our appreciation. Uh, SteadyHQ.com slash EN slash Bee and Honey for all the details. Um, if you can make it happen, we'd very much appreciate it. Okay, but... On with the show. Right, Seb, you went to the uh, Borussia Derby on Saturday. Dortmund playing Mönchengladbach. A game of um, not two halves, but... Maybe two uh, halves in the same half, maybe. Three, three twenty-three minute bits. <laughs> it's interesting, um, though. What, what happened there? Right, well, it's sort of... To be honest, it kind of felt like it encapsulated what Dortmund have been for the last couple of years because they were very, very poor for 25 minutes and Gladbach deservedly led. They, they played very, very well. They capitalized on a lot of sloppiness, a lot of, kind of very passive defending. But then they come back into the game with these little individual moments. Julian um, Brand with a lovely little piece of skill and pass for Marcel Sabitzer. Um And then Jimmy Bino Gittens. With a nice setup for, for a kind of a finish that I didn't know Nicholas Fulcrew had in his locker. A kind of deft outside of the right very lift over the goalkeeper. Very, very nice. Very subtle. And then obviously Bayern Gittens scored the fifth goal of the half. It, it was interesting because I, I don't... And I get this feeling a lot when I watch Dortmund play. I don't feel like I learned anything about what they are as a side. I learned things about what individually some of their players are and, and what they're capable of. But it was it was very, very strange. And then... As ever, when you have a half like that, your penance is to sit through a pretty miserable 45 minutes after the break. Um, and the game was played in almost a kind of a, I suppose, West German monsoon. doesn't quite work, but it was pretty wild for that time of year. Strange game. What did you make of Gladbach? Mixed, mixed. I, I think, well, let's start with the positives. I think... Um, Rocco Wrights is someone that really interests me as a player. Um, I went to the game with um, my friend Ryan Hun from the Stadio podcast. We were talking before about what happened to Florian Neuhaus over the past couple of years and sort of what he was expected to be versus 
what he kind of eventually turned into. And yeah, yeah well, what happened to Florian Neuhaus? I don't know, Rafa. I, I, I sort of expected him to be playing six or eight for Germany by now. And or to have moved for a huge amount of money to some Premier League team or something like that. And he just, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. He just hasn't evolved as, as you'd have expected him to. Did the, did the same thing happen to Florian Neuhaus that happened to Julian Weigel? That's an interesting one. Like I, I always felt Weigel was a kind of just a, a chronic loss of confidence. Um, and Weigel played pretty well, actually. Um, and I quite like the Gladbach midfield. So we talked about Rice, Weigel in there. But um, Manu Kone is one of those players maybe at, at this stage of his career where he plays really well in moments. He has sort of touches of the ball and, and periods of time where you think, goodness, he's going to be a good player. Um, and, you know, how good a player he is is going to depend upon what he's surrounded by and how he's coached and all those kind of things, the situation. But this is very forceful sort of, again, um, we were, we were talking to York before we started recording about how good his weekend was as a Gladbach fan. And he had a great half an hour, but then so did Manu Kane. And like everything else to do at Gladbach, everything about them that was good in the first half just receded away the last hour of the game. And pretty disappointing, especially how many good things have been said about Sione's impact at the club this season um, and how well kind of uh, the team has functioned. Think of the game against Wolfsburg, which is hugely, hugely impressive for the international break. Um, and so I didn't really see, I wouldn't call it a collapse because Dortmund's impact was really about those individual moments we've spoken about, but it, it was it was disheartening. Um, what did you make of it? Did you see the game? I didn't see the whole uh, 90 minutes, uh, so extended highlights, but yeah, strangely familiar I would say um, an enigma wrapped in a riddle and that's what they or the other way around especially after they had these big talks this week um, Hans-Joachim Watzke apparently spoke to the team and there was another one of those situations where everyone was reminded of their responsibilities and you know uh, don't be too comfortable And then they completely sleepwalk into the first 20 minutes or so. Yeah. And um, get destroyed by Borussia Mönchengladbach. But then somehow come back, leaving us uh, none the wiser. I, I mean, I guess, I guess the Bundesliga almost looks like it'll be beyond them at this point. So it'll come down to what's often been important for Terzic, uh, the cup, cup competitions. They have a huge game this week at home to AC Milan to uh, make it through the group stage. A win would, would put them through. And of course, they're playing away to Stuttgart uh, the week after in uh, what looks a very tasty last 16 round in the German Cup. Therefore, I think if Terzic gets through the group stage, get through to the next round in the in the cup, I think there will be enough for the hierarchy, for the supporters to feel comfortable with what they're doing. If they get knocked out in one or perhaps both of them, then I think we might be looking at the winter break that would look like last year's winter break where there was a real sense of crisis, even though they were only, I think, a couple of points off fourth spot but it didn't feel that way 
And I think uh, we might see a similar scenario playing out. Do you feel Dortmund's identity is as a football team, not as a club? I think that's that's pretty set in stone. But what's the feeling you get from them as a as a side? What they represent? Because I, you get so used to to watching them as a system based team and beating sides as a as a result of um, the mechanics. Like in the past, over the sort of past 10, 15 years. Now I. Every time I sit down to watch a Dortmund game, I don't know what I'm about to see, which is quite a strange feeling. Yeah, I think that's down to Terzic because Terzic is very pragmatic and Terzic doesn't, I think, have a fixed playing identity. It works for them at times because he sort of just mm, tinkers and moves players around and changes the system a little bit. And by and large, the results have been okay. And the performances have clearly picked up since that awful start. And they have been on a decent run results-wise. We shouldn't overestimate or overplay the amount of bad results they've had. There weren't that many this season, in this calendar year even. But you're right. I mean, we expect Dortmund to become a more defined kind of uh, team, a proposition. And that doesn't seem to really happen. And that's why, I think that's one of the reasons why the question marks about tears, it just don't quite go away. Mm. I think people expect a more defined, a more refined totality when Dortmund get on the pitch, mm -hmm. rather than these uh, individuals that you talked about. I think it's kind of, we talked about the Gladbach's first half an hour and... I, I agree. It was it, it was a kind of blitz without feeling like a blitz. So it didn't feel as if Dortmund had done anything to be in that position. But then that was entirely the problem, right? You, you come out for the first half an hour of a local derby in front of that crowd and you play in a way which I think like the first goal sort of sums it up because um, Alessandro players through ball is it almost happens in slow motion. And Rocker Rice is a good player, but he's not... Um, He's not someone that should be accelerating away untouched beyond your last man. And yet there's sort of no resistance to that. And um, I feel like it, that's such a, a such anathema to, to what Dortmund represent. Like, obviously, I, my, um, I suppose the more I, when I started to learn about German football and started to experience it, um, I encountered a Dortmund that were, were very forceful, like, you know, and they're a very sort of sensory football team. And you have these little moments now which are so at odds with it, which is like the, the Kone goal where he has maybe three, four, five different touches in the penalty box around uh, a forest of defenders who, who just allow him to kind of to dance and pivot and then um, take a free shot at goal. It's very odd to me. And I think like, I think maybe Terzic suffers from that. I think, I think you're right because I, th I think the temptation becomes to ignore like the good results and the good sequences and actually um, so a lot of the good that he's done with this group of players, which I don't think is exceptional. And it's that culture clash, which is really weird. And I, I feel like it's going to come up for a long time yet, but it's, it's still such a, it's still something which is, is very difficult to get used to. Yeah. Less difficult to get used to is Leverkusen winning. They did it again. 34 points from 12 games after that 3-0 uh, win at Werder Bremen. One of those wins that uh, in Germany would be described. Tension, learning Fußball Deutsch. 
Learning Fußball Deutsch with Beer and Honey. Ungefährdet. Sepp, have you been in Germany long enough to have come across this word? No, and I'm about an hour and a half away from having my daily German lesson today. So please, educate me. Right. Ungefährdet means never in danger, never in doubt. But it's one of those stock phrases that get thrown out whenever there's a big win and whenever the opposition have literally or figuratively no chance. Um, things didn't go so well for Bremen when they scored an own goal with just nine minutes, Dehmann. And then the uh, irrepressible Frimpong and uh, the just as irrepressible Grimaldo adding a second and a third. A historic uh, result for Leverkusen because they, they equaled uh, Bayern's best start under Guardiola, but they have their own record now because Frimpong scoring made them the first team ever to score at least two goals in all the first 12 Bundesliga games. So Xabi Alonso is um, working his magic. I mean, what can we say about Leverkusen we haven't said yet? Uh, Seb, I'm, I'm running out of uh, praise. I'm running out of superlatives about the way they're playing. Even when they're not playing well, they still play really well. And it's hard to see them drop points at this uh, moment in time. Yeah, and also when they've encountered difficult moments this season when I think everybody's mind collectively has thought, right, this is the point, this is the stumble. There's always somebody, actually typically Grimaldo or Fringpong, who comes up with an answer. Is there anybody, I, I was talking to a friend about this over the weekend, is there anybody in Europe who is maintaining a higher standard of goal than Alex Grimaldo at the moment that you can think of? <laughs> in terms of uh, the quality of goals? Just the quality of strike, just the quality of goal and... I mean, maybe Ali Ganacho. Maybe Ganacho. Yeah, yeah, but, well, they, uh, <laughs> we the had this conversation on Saturday. Smaller. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's, uh, Grimaldo hasn't done that yet. But I, I, um, I think well, maybe the one thing that hasn't been said about Alonso is his system and his style of play and um, his ability to spray a 40-yard pass in training sessions has attracted a lot of attention, and, and rightly so. But maybe the individual improvement of some of these players, because I, I think Fringpong is a, a really good example of someone who has come on in the last year and that aligns pretty well with Alonso's arrival at the club, has become, I would say, among the very best wingbacks, certainly in, in Europe at the moment. And he just, he's added, um, like physically and technically, he's the same player, but his decisions in the final third and his, uh, you know, past shot selection has just, it has improved immeasurably. Um, and I think uh, Victor Boniface has attracted a lot of attention, um, rightly, for, for his performances and his adjustment to the Bundesliga after moving from Union Saint-Gerois. But I think a lot of that depends on the contribution of someone like Frimpong because that dynamic has been instant. From, from match day one, that system within the team has, has existed. And that's a huge deal. Like if you have, if you're a centre forward and you've been signed for that amount of money and also remember with, with Boniface, people talked about his injuries and, you know, can you come from Belgium to Germany and can you... Um, you know, having never really been a volume goal scorer in the past, Boniface um, immediately starts scoring goals. And, and so some of these individual players, <clears throat> saying to, to York before we started that I've, I'm experiencing the first cold of the year, so my voice might pack up during this. Um, but 
Yeah, the, the individual improvement is is the thing that really interests me. And, and Grimaldo is another example because I don't think, well, I mean, he didn't, as a free agent, he didn't he didn't really attract a lot of attention, and he didn't he wasn't someone who was who was connected to all sorts of high powered Champions League sides. And and right now, that looks like a massive mistake from a lot of different teams around Europe. He's been fantastic. Um, so yeah, just could be more they, impressed. Their recruitment makes everyone else look bad. It's one of those yeah. situations. Um, a lot of the pressure that uh, or the uh, disquiet at Dortmund goes back to their transfer policy compared to what Leverkusen did um, for less money. And it's uh, easy to point finger fingers and say, you know, why didn't you buy this guy? Why didn't you buy that guy? Um, so, yeah, making making life difficult for everybody else on and off the pitch, Leverkusen, this year. Do you feel like Leverkusen entered the summer knowing a bit more precisely what they needed and what they wanted? So I went to, I went to Leverkusen's training camp in South Elden and... I had a conversation with Simon Rolfs and he was talking about, he was talking about that group of players. So Xhaka, Hoffman and Grimaldo. And, you know, because obviously outwardly Leverkusen's identity is as a procurer of young developing talent that can be, you know, um, evolved and then sold on. And he said, well, one of the things we wanted to do was to, to, and I'm paraphrasing, was to kind of rewire our dressing room dynamics and to change the chemistries we had there and, and sort of, uh, shift the, I suppose the uh, uh, the demographics a little bit, and it's interesting that I, we're kind of I'm, I'm drawing a straight line between the two things, but interesting that we're talking about that and this ability to kind of see challenges in games and have little moments of adversity, but then respond really well to them. Um, like I, I, th- I think back Rafa to that game against Bayern at the Allianz Arena when you know they considered that terrible goal to Harry Kane really early. When I think the whole world kind of just thought, ugh, you could you could almost feel everybody sagging. Um, yeah, okay, so the, this form is actually a trick, and you've just you've 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 conceded from the most basic corner routine that there is, and yet back they came and they play Bayern off the pitch, and it's really interesting that that coincides with this kind of group of um, saying sort of group of adults sounds a little bit like I'm denigrating the younger players. It's not what I mean, but just having the kind of the level of responsibility and the guidance within the side is it just made such a huge difference. Yeah, I'll tell you what will be interesting. On Sunday, Leverkusen are hosting Borussia Dortmund. That's going to be fun. That is interesting. That's going to be fun. Those games have been very, very edgy and tasty in recent years. Oh, this one in particular should should, uh, provide plenty of interesting moments to analyse for us. A more straightforward affair uh, for Bayern Munich on Friday night. They went to Köln where they struggled, of course, in recent years, or Köln provided some decent opposition against them, I should say. Uh, last season, you'll remember, they drew 1-1 in Munich, and of course, Bayern needed that very late Jamal Musiala piece of magic to win the German title when they played that last year, uh, the last day of last season. Uh, this time, the inevitable Harry Kane um, scoring uh, his 18th goal in the league, that's also a new record. Incredible. But then Bayern uh, basically shut down shop and uh, another Fußball Deutsch. Learning Fußball Deutsch with beer and honey. They moved into Ergebnisverwalten-Modus. 
Do you know what Ergebnis verwalten ist? I did not, Rafa. Okay, so verwalten ist to administrate. So to be part of administration and again, it's the result. So basically you stop playing and you just make sure that the result stays the same. Like somebody working in an office, just doing little stamps on the paper, um, doing the very minimum amount of work necessary to get the work done. I guess you'd say to manage the result, but it doesn't quite have the same connotation of sort of bureaucracy and uh, somebody not really exerting a lot of effort to uh, to get things over the line. Feel, feels like that word shouldn't exist in German, really. Like, <laughs> culturally, that just I think it's a word happen. invented for Bayern because they've they've been, uh, especially in the Hitzfeld years, that's how they used to win games. Very ugly, very... Um, well, ugly is maybe the wrong word, but maybe professional, maybe minimalist... Um, and they would often, when they lead, just make sure, you know, we're not going to concede a goal. Uh, that's it. Just go home with the three points. It only really changed in, yeah, in fairly recent years um, when Van Gaal introduced a different kind of philosophy that Bayern become more, more expensive and more interested in playing, playing good-looking football as opposed to successful football. But this was the this was the page of a page of a page out of the book of the old Bayern. Uh, this time with Thomas Tuchel uh, showing his pragmatic side. Didn't even make any substitutions, uh, Seb, which came in for a bit of criticism because he'd of course criticized the fact that Bayern had to play on Friday night after the international break. Lots of tired players. He talked about how tired they were, but then he didn't make any substitutions and he said, well I didn't feel it, didn't feel it, which uh, left a lot of German observers scratching their heads because it's not really the thing that uh, that you say in Germany. But uh, he used an Anglicism to explain why he felt that uh, the players on the pitch had rhythm, they had a cohesion, and he didn't want to make any substitutions. But I, I'm pretty sure those substitutions will come or those replacements will come when they play Copenhagen in a pretty meaningless game on Wednesday in a Munich that will be, I think, um, suffering from very deep temperatures. I think minus five in snow. Yeah, uh, predicted. apparently so. Yeah. Um, I think the Allianz Arena might not be totally full for that. It's like the PSG game from the, uh, the Geisterspiel days. Uh, when it just it was just it looked like the coldest place on earth the the tickle substitution thing so one of the things that surprised me when i when i moved to germany was just how total the media focus on Bayern munich is because compared to england Bayern munich are essentially liverpool manchester united arsenal chelsea combined all in one and so as time has gone on it's quite fun to when you're watching not just the games themselves but the prelude to them you can kind of identify things which are going to become media cycles and obviously Tickle does his his, his spiel about uh, you know, fixture congestion and the problem with you know keeping players fresh and then as the game goes on you suddenly realize there's no substitutions being made and you know exactly what's going to happen throughout the rest of the weekend even though there's a whole slate of other Bundesliga <laughs> matches to to play in in his defense um I kind of agree with him I I I, I get more worried about clone um Colin sorry I anglicized that um, as the weeks go by because they pose 
almost no threat at all in this game. And, and one, Bayern played as intensely as they had to in this game. Um, and I suppose from a Bayern Munich perspective, yes, like, you know that, that, that that's one aspect. They managed the game really well, but like for Cologne not to rattle Bayern at home feels, you know, with, with a winter ahead, it feels kind of discouraging. Um, and I'm not quite sure what happens next with I'm God. It feels like a, it feels a little bit like an Urs Fischer situation at Cologne at the moment. Um, I don't know if that's fair or right, but it, that's how it feels. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, Cologne were okay, but they didn't trouble Bayern, and uh, Stefan Baumgart apologized to his team after the game, saying, "Yeah, I." I pushed them all forward and it was kind of suicidal. And uh, that's when Bayern took us apart early on. And Bayern, of course, should have scored two or three more goals on the break early on. Harry Kane and Sané combining beautifully, just Sané's finishing, letting him down. And then they went to a more defensive mode and then Bayern felt, okay, we already won it up. We don't have to expose ourselves. So this kind of stalemate um, evolved and then right at the end they threw men forward again and Bayern coped with it pretty well. So yeah, the kind of result, if not the performance that we expected from a usually more high-scoring Bayern Munich team. Um, talking of um, unexpected results, if that's not too unkind, Union Berlin, they weren't beaten. Huh. Hooray! The first draw. <laughs> After nine Bundesliga defeats in a row and four games without even a goal, a late goal from our friend Kevin Folland. Remember him? 88th minute to rescue point at home to Augsburg. The much improved Jesse Forup Augsburg, we should say. A different team since the arrival of the Danish manager. Uh, is that is that the big change? Is that the big turnaround for Union? Seb? Psychologically, I think it's really important. I spoke to um, a couple of people close to the club on Sunday and the relief at just having scored at home, again, just feels really significant. And to break the sequence always matters. Uh, I still think... Um, I still think there, there are a couple of things seriously wrong. Like, I... I, I one of the, the trends with Union under Fisher was this was renewal. I know a lot of emphasis has been placed on who arrived this summer and, and whether they fit the idea of what a Union Berlin team should be. And um, I remember listening to Christoph Biermann, um, and I agree with this entirely, talking about what happens when a group of players who've overachieved experience success and, and what they start to feel about individual their individual worth and what they have to do. And, and I, I think it's really a stupid point. The other thing I'd add is that all the way through the Fisher cycle, like the team had kind of been sort of replaced each year. Like even if you look at sort of who scored goals for Union Berlin over the past four or five years, each year you have new players in different slots and you have people who are given an opportunity to sort of overachieve themselves. This didn't happen over the summer. And so you allowed the situation that, that Christoph described, which is that people start to feel slightly above the team ethic. Um, and so, yes, new manager appointment, Kevin Volland has scored a goal. Last time I saw Kevin Volland, he was getting sent off against Leipzig at the Alta Fulsterei um, for a pretty wild tackle. Um, 
And so that's encouraging. But then I think there's a lot of messy dynamics there, which um, social dynamics, which I think need to be need to be repaired or remedied in some way. And I don't know how you do that. Um, so I don't expect this to be the kind of like nature's reset and for all of a sudden for us to see that incredibly rigid, difficult to beat Union Berlin. Um, they're still giving up chances. They did again at the weekend. Um, and it's it's a nice moment, but the chances they're creating are still not quite where they were. Uh, it's very difficult. I, I, I don't fear for them in the relegation sense, but um, there's a couple of steps back that need to be taken, if that makes sense, I think, before they can kind of re return regain the momentum. Yeah, well, um, the man charged with regaining momentum is Nina Bielica, who's coming in off the back of a 16-match spell at Trabzonspor with mixed results. Before that, he was at Ozijek, uh, Dinamo Zagreb, Lech Poznan, and uh, some Austrian clubs. And of course, he did play uh, for Kaiserslautern and a couple of Austrian clubs as well. Uh, Croatian former uh, player who will be charged to yeah, change the fortunes of a club. And it's not Raul. The uh, managerial <laughs> appointment uh, equivalent of Isco, who in the end did not arrive <laughs> at Union. Uh, let's see what uh, what Bielica can do with this team. But moving, I, yeah, I am. Um, oh no, no, I was just going to say because I the, the Isco thing um, reminds me of one of my favourite moments in in German football since I got here, which is that I, I went to um, Europa League game last last season um, against Union Saint Gilles. And I went down to the Alsterforsterei, and on the way there, that sort of that lovely walk uh, down the down the down the canal path, down the river path, to the stadium through the forest, um, I was walking behind three different Union fans who had Isco's name on the back of their shirts. I just thought, what a bold move that is! Like, because you, you must have made a decision within the space of about six or seven hours on transfer deadline day when it looked certain that he'd come, and you felt certain enough to get the shirts printed as a group. But then, when he didn't join the club. You didn't then decide to kind of uh, to to just think again and start again with a new shirt. Just fine. Isco is a moment in time, so let's keep him. Okay, moving on to our friends RB Leipzig. Uh, they found a new bogey team, Angstgegner. Regular listeners will know this word from Fußball Deutsch, uh, the team that uh, creates sleepless nights for you. Um, Wolfsburg knocked them out in the German Cup, and here they are on Saturday, uh, knocking him out, well, not quite knocking him out of the race of the for the top four, but certainly providing a, a bit of a blow to their hopes and aspirations. 2-1, uh, uh, Jonas Wind, uh, high-scoring Jonas Wind, and Rogerio for the hosts, and Paulsen for the visitors who... Looked uncharacteristic, who looked uncharacteristically tame and lame in attack. Um, fifth place, still only one point behind the top four places. And of course, they have qualified for the next round in the Champions League, uh, where they face Manchester City this week in a pretty meaningless game. Uh, cause for concern, uh, Leipzig's form or the kind of are where we expected them to be. Cause for raised eyebrow rather than concern, I think. Like, uh, I, I think when, 
when the season started, I think a lot of people rightly said, well, there's a lot of different parts at Leipzig. There's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of players, so a lot of players coming in. And I think in a way, the, the, the strength of their start sort of condemned them to a little bit of negativity now because um, certainly, uh, like if, you, if you look at the impact of some of those players now, um, Appenda's the obvious one, of course, just because I think he's been, he's looked excellent. Um, but you, considering what they've lost, I mean, they've had, over the last couple of years, the level of talent that's come out of Leipzig is just astronomical. Like you could fill a, a, a Bundesliga team, a Bundesliga winning team with the players that they've sold. Um, so it's just a misstep, but I, I feel generally good about Leipzig in the kind of footballing rather than social sense. Let me just clarify that before like, uh, people come after me on social media. Um, because of how much depth they have, uh, it's, it's really interesting that now... Um, you kind of have that rotation between Appenda and Sesko of the pitch playing alongside Paulson or together if, they, if need be. Um, Werner is still there, of course, but you, you have some someone like um, Baumgartner on the bench, which is just such a, a luxury potentially like to uh, as, as an impact player. So um, I think they'll be absolutely fine. I think this is just a misstep. This is one of, one of those kind of like, well, it's nearly the winter break, but not quite. Um, and Wolfsburg are a good side. Like also Wolfsburg are a side who will punish you if you're poor defensively, which I think this is what happened. Um, so no, I don't, I don't, I don't worry about it. I just think also, um, I don't think the race for the top four beyond, beyond what's happening between Leverkusen and, and Bayern at the top of the table. I think the standard of the top four race is a little bit lower than it was last season. So I think we're going to get this. We're going to have periods where teams drop off for a few weeks. Um, but Leipzig are, uh, okay. I, uh, I'm still impressed by how quickly it's come together um, because I thought this would be much more of a transitional. Yeah, year. I think the growth pains have have been delayed. Yeah, and we expected them earlier, which perhaps makes it look as if suddenly things are not right when they are just trying to build a new team and we should have expected those problems all along. Uh, very important point you make there, uh, Seb. And oh, important points also being made down at the bottom. Yeah, Heidenheim and Bochum, they draw. A nil-nil result. It's not the kind of result that really helps either team, but at the same time, a point is is okay. Uh, some good chances, especially for Heidenheim. Uh, Bochum, Haftenpaft, they played some decent stuff, but uh, nil-nil kind of right. And Hoffenheim, Mainz, a similar story. Even though Mainz probably did enough to win that game under the interim mm. coach Jan Sievert. Uh, really strong performance. One of the best ones of the season. But uh, Hoffenheim, who are much better away from home than at home this year, for whatever reason, uh, snatching a point, which keeps them in the running for the top four places. Also, one more 1-1 one -one draw to mention. Was Freiburg's yeah, rather disappointing outing against uh, Darmstadt. Good point for Darmstadt. Could have been worse. It could have been worse. For Freiburg, I could think. Could have been worse yeah. for Freiburg, but Freiburg in ninth place and not really going anywhere um, compared to their fantastic last few years. It looks as if also for them it might be a bit of a transitional season or a season of plateauing in, in midfield. 
of the table. Yeah, I think so. But then I, I, I think this is what happens when you, you have these upwardly mobile teams. Like you create an expectation of, uh, for Freiburg qualify for any European competition, people forget what an achievement that is. That, can, that can't become, as it can't for, for Union Berlin, the Champions League, or even Europa League, can't become a new normal. Um, like you still have to retain the context of the budget these teams are working under. Also what they, like, and this is not specific to German football by any means, but this idea that when you lose a player, for instance, and you're able to sell someone, you don't, even though you get the transfer revenue in, you don't get the opportunity to just replace them and return to the level you're at before. You, you, you have to, it's the, it's the sort of, it's a, it's a lower level of the uh, perennial Dortmund issue, which is that just because you're able to develop talent, sell it on and make a huge profit, doesn't mean that you can then reinvest and get stronger from that point. It's always taking a step back. And I think particularly when you're a lower budget side and you've taken on the extra fixtures that come with something like the Europa League or the Conference League, uh, it's incredibly difficult. And this affects, like if you think about how it affects uh, Premier League teams with all the resources they have and how, for instance, West Ham United struggled as a result of being in the Europa League a few years ago when they had their run to the semi-finals that they, when they got beaten by Eintracht. Like, of course, teams like Freiburg who rely on a smaller group of players are going to to suffer wear and tear. And, and you know, it's 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 fine. It doesn't always have to be a kind of um, perpetual evolution. Um, and transition is going to be part of football. Um, so it's it feels like one of those seasons. There's nothing. There's nothing about Freiburg which um, I'm trying to say this without it sounding rude, but it, it, there's nothing there that intrigues me at the moment. Um, but only because the last couple of years have been um, have been such a joy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Or is, that, is that too offensive to Christian Strike? No, okay. no. Good. I think that's fair. That's fair. We get used to um, to everything, even people overachieving, and that's the yeah. That's the problem. But I would say we haven't quite gotten used to how well Stuttgart are playing this year. And here they are, uh, winning again, this time away to Frankfurt. That's not an easy place to go to and win on a Saturday night. But Dennis Undaf, what a signing he's been from Brighton. Two goals for him in the absence of Seru Girassi, who came on later, but isn't quite fully fit yet to start. What an amazing result and what a great performance yet again for Stuttgart. I mean, they were always threatening to do something quite special. Christoph and I talked about them as possible dark horses this year, but to be in third place after 12 games, that is mm. quite remarkable for a team fighting against relegation last year. I've loved watching them as well, Raphael. I... I Gerasi is his own spectacle. We know this. And that's had enough coverage. Uh, you mentioned Undav. I think I would actually, I'd highlight that little triangle down the left. So Mittelstadt, Furik, and I know he plays centrally, but Milo. Milo is just, I looks absolutely excellent. Um, he created the goal for, for Undav, the first goal for Undav on Saturday. Uh, but their football is a delight. And the, the progress in, what, seven months? is amazing not not just in terms of where they're on the table but the start of play like i if you said to me this time last year you will look forward to watching stuttgart games i 
I, because consider what they were. They, they just used to cower behind the ball and counterattack and rely on their pace. And there was no craft at all to the way they played and couldn't really defend that well either. And now they, they, they look like a Champions League side. And that's a, it's one of the great coaching jobs in, in Europe by Sebastian Hoeneß, uh, in my opinion. And like some of those individual players uh, too, like Furek is the obvious one because obviously he's been called up by Germany and he's been capped. Um, but yeah, Milo, Stiller, um, I, I know Hunis had Stiller at, I think he managed him at Hoffenheim and I, I think he managed him at when he was, um, when he was, uh, at Bayern, when he was one of the, uh, coaching the Bayern U team or the, um, uh, Bayern two, um, I think Stiller was in that side, but he looks like Clint and I was a little bit surprised that Nagelsmann didn't call him up to, to the Germany team, to the Germany squad. Um, but yeah, just great. And I, I, I love the intricacy of their football and the craft of it. And um, actually, to be honest with you, this could have been three or four one. It, it sort of flattered Eintracht, I think. And um, uh, Dino Topman has, has done a really good job over the last couple of weeks, especially. And given how much he lost over the summer, but this was this was so comprehensive um, in a way that probably the scoreline didn't suggest. And yeah, just hugely impressed. And it's, it's kind of... Um, one of the conversations I've heard from people as I, I, I try to learn more and more about German football is how much the Bundesliga needs these big sides. Obviously, Stuttgart being a, a very big club, but in the absence of uh, Schalke or HSV or, um, or Hertha Dan and the side of Bundesliga now at Kaiserslautern or Fortuna Dusseldorf, like feels really good to have a another heavy punching side playing good football and being a you know another a feature side on the fixture list every week. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more, Seb. Stuttgart, one of the really bright young things in this in this season of the Bundesliga. We can't quite get enough of them. And it's great to see such a blue chip side doing really well this season. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much, dear listener. Thank you very much, uh, Seb, for being this uh, week's very special guest. It's like when, uh, when, when Scott Parker replaced Luka Modric at Tottenham, but... Did my did my very best, Christoph Berman. Yeah, <laughs> a niche a niche re- a niche reference that some some listeners will appreciate uh, with a with a Spurs <laughs> uh, of a Spurs. Um, I was going to say affliction, but that's the right word. Affiliation. No afflictions, right? Affiliation. Uh, no afflictions, right? Afflictions, fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday with a little look back at the German teams in the Champions League. Dortmund, of course, still very much in it. Union. While they can qualify for the Europa League, Bayern and Leipzig have their job mostly done. Uh, We'll check that out on Thursday. If you're a subscriber, um, you'll get that episode. But that's it for today. Bye-bye. Bia and Honey, the German football podcast.